Section 5 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jones by Lloyd Osborne. 1. I could have taken no like a man and would have gone away decently and never bothered her again. I told her so straight out in the first angry flush of my rejection. But this string business, with everything left hanging in the air, so to speak, made a fellow feel like thirty cents. "'It simply means that I'm engaged and you are not,' I said. "'It's nothing of the kind,' she returned tearfully. "'You're as free as free, Ezra. You can go away this moment and never write or anything.' Her lips trembled as she said this, and I confess it gave me a kind of savage pleasure to feel that it was still in my power to hurt her. It may sound unkind, but still you must admit that the whole situation was exasperating. Here was five foot five of exquisite, blooming, twenty-year-old American girlhood, sending away the man she confessed to care for, because, forsooth, she would not marry before her elder sister. I always thought it was beautiful of Freddy, she was named Frederica, you know, to be always so sweet and tender and grateful about Eleanor, but sometimes gratitude can be carried altogether too far, even if you are an orphan and were brought up by hand. Eleanor was thirty-four if a day, a nice enough woman, of course, and college-bred and cultivated and clever, but her long suit wasn't good looks. She was tall and bony, worshipped genius and all that, and played the violin. No, repeated Freddy, I shall never, never marry before Eleanor. It would mortify her, I know it would, and make her feel that she herself had failed. She's awfully frank about those things, Ezra, surprisingly frank. I don't see why being an old maid is always supposed to be so funny, do you? It's touching and tragic in a woman who'd like to marry, and who isn't asked. "'But Eleanor must have had heaps of offers,' I said. "'Surely just one.' "'Well, there's something,' I remarked cheerfully. "'Why didn't she take him, then?' "'She told me only last night that she was sorry she hadn't.' Here, at any rate, was something to chew on. I saw a gleam of hope. Why shouldn't Eleanor marry the only one and make us all happy?' "'That was three years ago,' said Freddy. I have loved you for four, I retorted. I was cross with disappointment. To be dashed to the ground, you know, just as I was beginning. Tell me more about him, I went on. I'm a plain businessman and hang on to an idea like a bulldog. Once I get my teeth in, they stay in, for all you may drag at me and wallop me with an umbrella, metaphorically speaking, of course. Tell me his name, where he lives, and all. We were coming back from Colorado, and there was some mistake about our tickets. They sold our Pullman drawing-room twice over, to Dr. Jones and his mother, and also to ourselves. You never saw such a fight, and that led to our making friends and his proposing to Eleanor. Then why in heaven's name didn't she—it was on the tip of my tongue to say jump at him—take him. She said she couldn't marry a man who was her intellectual inferior. And was he? Oh, he was a perfect idiot, but nice and all that, and tremendously in love with her. Pity, isn't it? 
The obvious thing to do is to chase him up instantly. Where did you say he lived? His mother told me he was going to New York to practice medicine. But didn't you ever hear from him again? I mean, was that the end of it all? Yes. Then you don't even know if he has married since? No. Nor died? No. Nor anything at all? No. What was his first name? Wait a moment, let me think. Yes, it was Harry. Just Harry Jones, then, in New York City? Freddy laughed forlornly. But he must have had antecedents, I cried out. There are two ways of doing this Sherlock Holmes business, backward and forward, you know. Let's take Dr. Jones backward. As they say in post office forms, what was his place of origin? New York City. He begins there and ends there, does he, then? Yes. But how sure are you that Eleanor would marry him if I did manage to find him and bring him back? I'm not sure at all. No, but Freddy, listen, it's important. You told me yourself that she... I want the very identical words she used. Freddy reflected. She said she was almost sorry she hadn't accepted that silly doctor. That doesn't seem much, does it? I remarked gloomily. Oh, from Eleanor it does, Ezra. She said it quite seriously. She always hides her feelings under a veil of sarcastic humor, you know. You're certainly a very difficult family to marry, I said. Being an orphan, she began. Well, I'm going to find that Jones if I... Ezra, dear boy, you're crazy. How could you think for a moment that... I'm off, little girl. Goodbye. Wait a second, Ezra. She rose and went into the next room, reappearing with something in her hand. She was crying and smiling both at once. I took the little case she gave me. It was like one of those things that penknives were put in, and looked at her for an explanation. It's the hind leg of a j j jackrabbit, she said, shot by a g grave at the full of the moon. It's supposed to be lucky. It was given to me by a naval officer who got drowned. It's the only way I can help you. And thus equipped, I started bravely for New York. 2. In the directory I found eleven pages of Joneses, three hundred and eighty-four Henry Joneses, and, excluding seventeen dentists, eighty-seven Dr. Henry Joneses. I asked one of the typists in the office to copy out the list, and prepared to wade in. We were on the eve of a labor war, and it was exceedingly difficult for me to get away. As the managing partner of Hodge and Westaby boxers, not punching boxers, nor china boxers, but just plain American box-making boxers, I had to bear the brunt of the whole affair, and had about as much spare time as you could heap on a ten-cent piece. I had to be firm, conciliatory, defiant, and tactful all at once, and every hour I took off for jonesing threatened to blow the business sky-high. It was a tight place and no mistake, and it was simply jackrabbit hind-leg luck that pulled me through. My first Jones was a hoary old rascal above a drug store. He was a hard man to get away from, and made such a fuss about my wasting his time with idle questions that I flung him a dollar and departed. He followed me down to my cab, and insisted on sticking in a giant bottle of his dog-root tonic. 
I dropped it overboard a few blocks farther on, and thought that was the end of it, till the whole street began to yell at me, and a policeman grabbed my horse, while a street Arab darted up breathless with the dog-root tonic. I presented it to him together with a quarter, the policeman darkly regarding me as an incipient madman. The second Jones was a man of about thirty, a nice gentlemanly fellow in a fine office. I have usually been an off-hand man in business, accustomed to quick decisions, and very little beating about the bush. But I confess I was rather nonplussed with the second Jones. How the devil was I to begin? His waiting-room was full of people, and I hardly felt entitled to sit down and gas about one thing and the other, till the chance offered of leading up to the Van Courts. So I said I had some queer shooting sensations in the chest. In five minutes he had me half-stripped and was pounding my midriff in. And the questions that man asked! He began with my grandparents, roamed through my childhood and youth, dissected my early manhood, and finally came down to coffee and what I ate for breakfast. Then it was my turn. I asked him, for a starter, whether he had ever been in Colorado. No, he hadn't. After forty-five minutes of being hammered and stethoscoped and punched, and holding my breath until I was purple, and hopping on one leg, he said I was a very obscure case of something with nine syllables. At least I won't be positive with one examination, he said, but kindly come tomorrow at nine, when I shall be more at leisure to go into the matter thoroughly. I paid him ten dollars and went away sorrowfully. The third Jones was too old to be my man, so was the fourth. The fifth had gone away the month before, leaving no address. The sixth, however, was younger and more promising. I thought this time I'd choose something easier than pains in the chest. I changed them to my left hand. I was going to keep my clothes on anyhow. But it wasn't any use. Off they came. After a decent interval of thumping and grandfathers and what I had for breakfast, I managed to get in my question. Ever in Colorado, doctor? Oh, dear me, no. Another ten dollars and nothing accomplished. The seventh Jones was again too old. The eighth was a pale hobbledehoy. The ninth was a loathsome quack. The tenth had died that morning. The eleventh was busy, the twelfth was a veterinary surgeon, the thirteenth was an intern living at home with his widowed sister. Colorado? No, the widowed sister was positive he had never been there. The fourteenth was a handsome fellow of about thirty-five. He looked poor and threadbare, and I had a glimpse of a shabby bed behind a screen. Patients obviously had not often come his way, and his joy at seeing me was pitiful. I had meant to try a bluff and get in my Colorado question this time free of charge, but I hadn't the heart to do it. Slight pains in the head seemed a safe complaint. After a few questions he said he would have to make a thorough physical examination. "'No clothes off,' I protested. "'It's essential,' he said, and went on with something about the radioactivity of the brain and the vasomotor centers." The word motor made me feel like a sick automobile. I begged to keep my clothes on. I insisted. I promised to come tomorrow. But it wasn't any good, and in a few minutes he was hitting me harder than either of the two before. Maybe I was more tender. 
he electrocuted me extra from a switchboard, ran red-hot needles into my legs, and finally, after banging me around the room, said I was the strongest and wellest man who had ever entered his office. "'There's a lot of make-believe in medicine,' he said, "'but I'm one of those poor devils who can't help telling a patient the truth. There's nothing whatever the matter with you, Mr. Westaby, except that your skin has a slightly abrased look, and I seem to notice an abnormal sensitiveness to touch.' "'Were you ever in Colorado, doctor?' I asked, while he was good enough to help me into my shirt. "'Oh, yes, I know Colorado well.' My heart beat high. "'Some friends of mine were out there three years ago,' I said. "'Wouldn't it be strange if by any chance the Van Courts—' "'Oh, I left Denver when I was fifteen. Five dollars!' The fifteenth Jones was a doctor of divinity, the sixteenth was a tapeworm specialist, the seventeenth was too old, the eighteenth was too old, the nineteenth was too old, a trio of disappointing patriarchs. The twentieth painted out black eyes. The twenty-first was a Russian who could scarcely speak any English. He said he had changed his name from Karaforvor Kostrofovich to something more suited to American pronunciation. He seemed to think that Jones gave him a better chance. I sincerely hope it did. He told me that all the rest of the Jones family was in Siberia, but that he was going to bomb them out. The twenty-second was a negro, the twenty-third, he was a tall, youngish man, narrow-shouldered, rather commonplace-looking, with beautiful blue eyes and a timid, winning, deprecatory manner. I told him I was suffering from insomnia. After raking over my grandfather's again, and bringing the family history down by stages to the very moment I was shown into his office, he said he should have to ask me to undergo a thorough physical. But I was tired of being slapped and punched and breathed on and prodded, and was bold enough to refuse point-blank. I'd rather have the insomnia. We worked up quite a fuss about it, for there was something tenacious in the fellow, for all his mild, kind, gentle ways, and I had all I could do to get off by pleading press of business. But I wasn't to escape scot-free. Medical science had to get even somehow. He compromised by stinging my eye out with belladonna. Have you ever had belladonna squirted in your eye? Well, don't. He was sitting at the table writing out some cabalistic wiggles that stood for bromide of potassium, when I remarked casually that it was strange how well I could always sleep in Colorado. He laid down his pen with a sigh. A wonderful state, Colorado, I observed. To me it's the land of memories, he said. Sad, beautiful, irrevocable memories. Try tea for breakfast. Do you read Browning? Then you will remember that line, Oh, if I... And I insist on your giving up that cocktail before dinner. Some very dear friends of mine were once in Colorado, I said. Morristown people, the Van Courts. The Van Courts? Dr. Jones sprang from his chair, his thin, handsome face flushing with excitement. Do you mean to say that you know Eleanor Van Court? He gasped all my life. He dropped back into the chair again and mumbled something about cigars. I was only to have blank a day. In his perturbation I believed he limited me to a daily box. He was trying, and trying very badly, to conceal the emotions I had conjured up. They were talking about you only yesterday, I went on. 
that is, if it was you, a Pullman drawing-room, and a mistake about the tickets, he broke out. Yes, yes, it's they all right. Talking about me, did you say? Did Eleanor, I mean, did Miss Van Coort express? She was wondering how she could find you, I said. You see, they're busy getting up a house party, and she was running over her men. If I only knew where that dear Dr. Jones was, she said, and then asked me if by any possible chance, his fine blue eyes were glistening with all sorts of tender thoughts. It was really touching. And I was in love myself, you know. So she has remained unmarried, he exclaimed softly. Unmarried after all these years. She's a very popular girl, I said. She's had dozens of men at her feet, but an unfortunate attachment, something that seems to go back to about three years ago, has apparently determined her to stay out of the game. Dr. Jones dropped his head on his hands and murmured something that sounded like, Eleanor, Eleanor. Then he looked up with one of the most radiant smiles I ever saw on a man's face. I hope I am not presuming on a very short acquaintance, he said, but the fact is, why should I not tell you? Miss Van Coort was the woman in my life. I explained to him that Freddy was the woman in mine. Then you ought to have seen us fraternize. In twenty minutes I had him almost convinced that Eleanor had loved him all these years, but he worried a lot about a Mr. Wise who had been on the same train, and a certain Colonel Haddow who had also paid Eleanor attention. Jones was a great fellow for wanting to be sure. I pooh-poohed them out of the way, and gave him the open track. Then indeed the clouds rolled away. He beamed with joy. In his rich gush of friendship he recurred to the subject of my insomnia with a new-born enthusiasm. He subdivided all my symptoms. He dived again into my physical being. He consulted German authorities. I squirmed and lied and resisted all I could, but he said he owed me an eternal debt that could only be liquidated by an absolute cure. He wanted to tie me up and shoot me with an X-ray. He ordered me to wear white socks. He had a long, terrifying look at a drop of my blood. He jerked hairs out of my head to sample my nerve force. He said I was a baffling subject, but that he meant to make me well if it took the last shot in the scientific locker. And he wound up at last by refusing point-blank to be paid a cent. I waltzed away on air to write an account of the whole affair to Freddy and dictate a plan of operations. I was justified in feeling proud of myself. Most men would have tamely submitted to their fate instead of chasing up all the Joneses of Jonesville. Freddy sent me an early answer, a gay, happy, overflowing little note, telling me to try and engage Dr. Jones for a three-day house-party at Morristown. I was to telegraph when he could come, and was promised an official invitation from Mrs. Matthewman. She was the aunt, you know, that they lived with, one of those old porcelain ladies with a lace cap and a rent-roll. However, I could not do anything for two days, for we had reached a crisis in the labor troubles, and matters were approaching the breaking point. We were threatened with one of those sympathetic strikes that drive businessmen crazy. There was no question at issue between ourselves and our employees, but the thing ramified off somewhere to the sugar-vacuum-boiler riveters' union. Finally, the SVBRU came to a settlement with their bosses, 
and peace was permitted to descend on Hodge and Westaby's. I took immediate advantage of it to descend myself on Dr. Jones. He received me with open arms and an insomniacal outburst. He had been reading up, he had been seeing distinguished conferees, he had been mastering the subject to the last dot, and was panting to begin. I hated to dampen such friendship and ardor by telling him that I had completely recovered. Under the circumstances it seemed brutal, but I did it. The poor fellow tried to argue with me, but I insisted that I now slept like a top. It sounded horribly ungrateful. Here I was spurning the treasures of his mind, and almost insulting him with my disgusting good health. I swerved off to the house-party, Eleanor's delight and so on, Mrs. Matthewman's pending invitation, the hope that he might have an early date free. He listened to it all in silence, walking restlessly about the office, his blue eyes shining with a strange light. He took up a bronze paperweight and gazed at it with an intensity of self-absorption. "'I can't go,' he said. "'Oh, but you have to!' I exclaimed." Mr. Westaby, he resumed, I was foolish enough to back a friend's credit at a store here. He has skipped to Minnesota, and I am left with three hundred and four dollars and seventy-five cents to pay. To take a three days' holiday would be a serious matter to me at any time, but at this moment it's impossible. I gave him a good long look. He didn't strike me as a borrowing kind of man. I should probably insult him by volunteering." Was there ever anything so unfortunate? I can't go, he repeated with a little choke. You may never have another opportunity, I said. Eleanor is doing a thing I should never have expected from one of her proud and reserved nature. The advances of such a woman— He interrupted me with a groan. If it wasn't for my mother, I'd throw everything to the winds and fly to her, he burst out but I have a mother, a sainted mother, Mr. Westaby. Her welfare must always be my first consideration. Is there no chance of anything turning up? I said. An appendicitis case, an outbreak of measles? I thought there was a lot of scarlatina just now. He shook his head dejectedly. Doctor, I began, I am pretty well fixed myself. I'm blessed with an income that runs to five figures. If all goes the way it should, we shall be brothers-in-law in six months. We are almost relations. Give me the privilege of taking over this small obligation. I never saw a man so overcome. My proposal seemed to tear the poor devil to pieces. When he spoke, his voice was trembling. You don't know what it means to me to refuse, he said. My self-respect, my, my... And then he positively began to weep. You said three hundred and four dollars and seventy-five cents, I believe? He waved it from him with a long, lean hand. I cannot do it, he said, and for God's sake don't ask me to. I argued with him for twenty minutes. I laid the question before him in a million lights. I racked him with a picture of Eleanor, so deeply hurt, so mortified, that in her recklessness and despair she would probably throw herself away on the first man that offered. This was his chance, I told him, the one chance of his life. He was letting a piece of idiotic pride wreck the probable happiness of years. He agreed with me with moans and weeps. He had the candor of a child and the torrential sentiment of a German musician. 
$304.75 stood between him and eternal bliss, and yet he waved my pocketbook from him, and all the while I saw myself losing Freddy. I went away with his no, no, no still ringing in my ears. At the club I found a note from Freddy. She pressed me to lose no time. Mrs. Matthewman was talking of going to Europe, and of course she and Eleanor would have to accompany her. Eleanor, she said, had ordered two new gowns and had brightened up wonderfully. Only yesterday she told me she wished that silly doctor would hurry up and come, and that, you know, from Eleanor is almost a declaration. Some of my best friends happened to be in the club. It occurred to me that poor Neville was diabetic, and that Charlie Crossman had been boring everybody about his gout. I buttonholed them both, and laid my unfortunate predicament before them. I said I'd pay all the expenses. In fact, the more they could make it cost, the better I'd be pleased. "'What?' roared Neville. "'Put myself in the hands of a young fool, so that he may fill his empty pockets with your money. Where do I come in?' "'Good heavens, Westaby, you're crazy. Think what would happen to me if it came to Dr. Saltworthy's ears. He'd never have anything more to do with me.' Charlie Crossman was equally rebellious and unreasonable. "'I guess you've never had the gout,' he said grimly. "'But Charlie, old man,' I pleaded, "'all that you'd have to do would be to let him talk to you. I don't ask you to suffer for it. Just pay, that's all, pay the money.' "'I'm awfully easily talked into things,' said Charlie. There was never such a mule on the produce exchange. He'd be saying, take this, and I'm the kind of blankety-blank fool that would take it. Then I did a mean thing. I reminded Crossman of having backed some bills of his, big bills too, at a time when it was touch and go whether he'd managed to keep his head above water. "'Westaby,' he replied, don't think that time has lessened my sense of that obligation. I'd cut off my right hand to do you a good turn. But for heaven's sake, don't ask me to monkey with my gout. The best I could get out of him was the promise of an anemic servant girl. Neville generously threw in a groom with varicose veins. Small contributions, but thankfully received. "'Now what you do,' said Neville, "'is to go round right off and interview Bishop Jordan. "'He has sick people to burn.' "'But I said Jones would get on to it "'if I deluged him with the misery of the slums.' "'That's just where the bishop comes in,' said Neville. "'There isn't a man more in touch "'with the saddest kind of poverty in New York, "'the decent, clean, shrinking poverty "'that hides away from all the deadhead coffee and doughnuts.' If I was in your fix, I'd fall over myself to reach Jordan. Yes, you try Jordan, said Charlie, who, I'm sure, had never heard of him before. Then it's me for Jordan, said I. I went downstairs and told one of the bellboys to look up the address in the phone book. It seemed to me he looked pale, that boy. Aren't you well, Dan? I said. I don't know what is the matter with me, sir. I guess it must be the night work. I gave him a five-dollar bill and made him write down 1892 Eighth Avenue on a piece of paper. "'You go and see Dr. Jones first thing,' I said, "'and don't mention my name, nor spend the money on her mad marriage.' I jumped into a hansom with a pleasant sense that I was beginning to make the fur fly. "'That's a horrible cold of yours, Cabby,' 
I said as we stopped at the bishop's door, and I handed him up a dollar bill. That's just the kind of a cold that makes graveyards hum. I can't shake it off, sir, he said despondently. Try what I can, and it's never no use. There's one doctor in the world who can cure anything, I said. Dr. Henry Jones, 1892 Eighth Avenue. I was worse than you two weeks ago, and now look at me. Take this five dollars, and for heaven's sake, man, put yourself in his hands quick. Bishop Jordan was a fine type of modern clergyman. He was broad-shouldered mentally as well as physically, and he brought to philanthropic work the thoroughness, care, enthusiasm, and capacity that would have earned him a fortune in business. Bishop, I said, I've come to see if I can't make a trade with you. He raised his grizzled eyebrows and gave me a very searching look. A trade, he repeated, in a holding back kind of tone, as though wondering what the trap was. Here's a check for one thousand dollars drawn to your order, I went on, and here's the address of Dr. Henry Jones, 1892 Eighth Avenue. I want this money to reach him via your sick people, and that without my name being known or at all suspected. May I not ask the meaning of so peculiar a request? He's hard up, I said, and I want to help him. It occurred to me that I might make you, er, a confederate in my little game, you know. His eyes twinkled as he slowly folded up my check and put it in his pocket. I don't want any economy about it, Bishop, I went on. I don't want to make the best use of it or anything of that kind. I want to slap it into Dr. Jones's till and slap it in quick. Would you consider two weeks? Oh, one, please. It is understood, of course, that this young man is a duly qualified and capable physician, and that in the event of my finding it otherwise, I shall be at liberty to direct your check to other uses? Oh, I can answer for his being all right, Bishop. He's thoroughly up to date, you know, does the X-ray act, and keeps the pace of modern science. You say you can answer for him, said the Bishop genially. Might I inquire who you are? I'm named Westaby, Ezra Westaby, managing partner of Hodge and Westaby Boxers. I like boxers, said the bishop in a tone of benediction, rising to dismiss me. I like one thousand dollar checks, too. When you have any more to spare, just give them a fair wind in this direction. I went out feeling that the Episcopal Church had risen fifty per cent in my esteem. Bishops like that would make a success of any denomination. I like to see a fellow who's on to his job. I gave Jones a week to grapple with the new developments, and then happened along. The anteroom was full, and there was a queue down the street like a line of music-loving citizens waiting to hear Patty. Nice, decent-looking people with money in their hands. I always like to see a cash business, don't you? I guess it took me an hour to crowd my way upstairs, and even then I had to buy a man out of the line. Of course I commented on the rush. The Lord only knows what's happened to my practice, he said. The blamed thing has gone up like a rocket. It seems to me there must be a great wave of sickness passing over New York just now. Everybody's complaining, I said. This reminded him of my insomnia till I cut him short. What's the matter with our going down to the Van Courts from Saturday to Tuesday, I said. They haven't given up the hope of seeing you there, doctor, and the thing's still open. 
Then I waited for him to jump with joy. He didn't jump a bit. He shook his head. He distinctly said no. I told you it was the money side of it that bothered me, he explained. So it was at the time, for of course I couldn't foresee that my practice was going to fill the street and call for policemen to keep order. But, my dear Westoby, after giving the subject a great deal of consideration, I have come to the conclusion that it would be too painful for me to revive those, those, unhappy emotions I was just beginning to recover from. I thought you loved her, I exclaimed. That's why I've determined not to go, he said. I have outlived one refusal. How do I know I have the strength, the determination, the hardihood to undergo the agonies of another? It seemed a feeble remark to say that faint heart never won fair lady. I growled it out more like a swear than anything else. I was disgusted with the chump. She's the star above me, he said, and I am crushed by my own presumption. Is there any such fool as the man that breaks his heart twice for the impossible? But it isn't impossible, I cried. Hasn't she, as far as a woman can, hasn't she called you back to her? What more do you expect her to do? A woman's delicacy forbids her screaming for a man. I think Eleanor has already gone a tremendous way in just hinting. You may be right, he said pathetically, but then you may also be wrong. The risk is too terrible for me to run. It will comfort me all my life to think that perhaps she does love me in secret. Do you mean to say you're going to give it all up? I roared. You needn't get so warm about it, he returned. After all, I have some justification in thinking she doesn't care. What on earth do you suppose she invited you for, then? Well, it would be different, he said, if I had a note from her, a flower, some little tender reminder of those dear old dead days in the Pullman. She's saving up all that for Morristown, I said. For the first time in our acquaintance, Dr. Jones looked at me with suspicion. His blue eyes clouded. He was growing a little restive under my handling. You seem to make the matter a very personal one, he observed. Well, I love Freddy, I explained. It naturally brings your own case very close to mine. And then I am so positive that you love Eleanor and that Eleanor loves you. Put yourself in my place, doctor. Do you mean that you'd do nothing to bring two such noble hearts together? He seized my hand and wrung it effusively. He really did love Eleanor, you know. The only fault with him was his being so darned humble about it. He was eaten up with a sense of his own inferiority, and yet I could see he was just tingling to go to Morristown. Of course, I crowded him all I could, but the best I could accomplish was his promise to think it over. I hated to leave him wobbling, but patients were scuffling at the door and fighting on the stairs. The next thing I did was to get Freddy on the long-distance phone. Freddy, I said, after explaining the situation, you must get Eleanor to telegraph to him direct. What's the good of asking what she won't do? bubbled the sweet little voice. Can't you persuade her? I know she won't do it. Then you must forge it, I said desperately. It needn't be anything red-hot, you know, but something tender and sincere. Shall be awfully disappointed if you don't come, or there was a time when you would not have failed me. It's impossible. 
then he won't budge a single inch i replied ezra darling suppose i just signed the telegram van court the very thing if he misunderstood it i mean if he thought it really came from eleanor there couldn't be any fuss about it afterward could there and of course you'll send the official invitation from mrs matthewman besides for saturday yes saturday and you'll come just watch me ezra are you happy that depends on jones oh isn't it exciting i have the ring in my pocket but touch wood won't you freddy yes what's the matter with getting some forget-me-nots and mailing them to jones in an envelope all right i'll attend to it eighteen ninety two eighth avenue isn't it be sure it is forget-me-nots you know don't mix up the language of flowers and send him one that says i'm off with a handsomer man or you needn't come around any more oh ezra eleanor is getting quite worked up so am i wouldn't it be perfectly splendid if switch off quick here's aunt coming mayn't i even say i love you i daren't say it back ezra she's calling but do you yes unfortunately why unfortunate buzz buzz swizzlem bucks bucks aunt had cut us off however short as my talk with freddy had been it brightened my whole day late that same afternoon i went back to dr jones i was prepared to find him uplifted but i hadn't counted on his being maudlin the fellow was drunk positively drunk with happiness his tongue ran on like a mill stream i had to sit down and have the whole pullman car episode inflicted on me a second time i was shown the receipt slip i was shown the telegram from eleanor i was shown with a whoop the forget-me-nots then he was going on saturday i asked he said he guessed it would take an earthquake to keep him away and a pretty big earthquake too oh it was a great moment and all the greater because i was tremendously worked up too i saw freddy floating before me my sweet girlish darling freddy holding out her arms while jones gassed and gassed and gassed i left him taking phenacetin for his headache three the house party had grown a little larger than was originally intended on saturday night we sat down twelve to dinner dr jones and i shared a room together and i must say whatever misgivings i might have had about him wore away very quickly on closer acquaintance in the first place he looked well in evening dress carrying himself with a sort of shy kind air that became him immensely at table he developed the greatest of conversational gifts that of the appreciative and intelligent listener i heard one of the guests asking eleanor who was that charming young man freddy and i hugged each other i mean metaphorically of course and gloried in his success in the presence of an admirer such as the mystery of women eleanor instantly got fifteen points better looking and you wouldn't have known her for the same girl freddy thought it was the two hundred and fifty dollar gown she wore but i could see it was deeper than that she was thawing in the sunshine of love and i'll do dr jones the justice to say that he didn't hide his affection under a bushel it was generous enough for everybody to bask in and in his pell-mell ardor he took us all to his bosom 
The women loved him for it, and entered into a tacit conspiracy to gain him the right of way to wherever Eleanor was to be found. In fact, he followed her about like a dog, and she could scarcely move without stepping on him. Sunday was even better. One of the housemaids drank some wood alcohol by mistake for vichy water, and the resulting uproar redounded to Jones's coolness, skill, and dispatch. He dominated the situation, and— well, I won't describe it, this not being a medical work, and the reader probably being a good guesser. Mrs. Matthewman remarked significantly that it must be nice to be the wife of a medical man. One would always have the safe feeling of a doctor at hand, in case anything happened at night. Eleanor said it was a beautiful profession that had for its object the alleviation of human pain. Freddy jealously tried to get in a good word for boxers, but nobody would listen to her except me. It was all Jones, 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 and the triumphs of modern medicine. Altogether, he sailed through that whole day with flying colors, first with the housemaid, and then afterward at church, where he was the only one that knew what Sunday after Epiphany it was. He made it plainer than ever that he was a model young man and a pattern." Mrs. Matthewman compared him to her departed husband, and talked about old-fashioned courtesy and the splendid men of her youth. Everybody fell over everybody else to praise him. It was a regular Jones boom. People began to write down his address and ask him if he'd be free Thursday or what about Friday, and started to book seats in advance. That evening, as I was washing my hands before dinner and cheerfully whistling Hiawatha, I became conscious that Jones was lolling back on a sofa at the dark end of the room. What particularly arrested my attention was a groan, preceded by a pack of heart-rending sighs. It worried me, when everything seemed to be going so well. He had every right to be whistling Hiawatha, too. "'What's the matter, Jones?' said I. He keeled over on the sofa and groaned louder than ever. "'It isn't possible that she's refused you?' I exclaimed. He muttered something about his mother. "'Well, what about your mother?' I said. "'Westaby,' he returned, "'I guess I was the worst kind of fool ever to put my foot into this house.' "'That was nice news, wasn't it? Just as I was settling in my head to buy that seventy-second street place and alter the basement into a garage.' "'You see, old man, my mother would never consent to my marrying Eleanor. I'm in the position of having to choose between her and the woman I love. And I owe so much to my mother, Westaby. She stinted herself for years to get me through college. She hardly had enough to eat. She—then he groaned a lot more. "'I can't think that your mother, a mother like yours, Jones, would consent to stand between you and your lifelong happiness.' It's morbid, that's what I call it, morbid just to dream of such a thing. There's Bertha, he quavered. Great Scott, and who's Bertha? The girl my mother chose for me two years ago, Bertha McNutt, you know. She'd really prefer me not to marry at all, but if I must, it's Bertha, Westaby, Bertha or nothing. It's too late to say that now, old fellow. It's not too late for me to go home this very night. "'Well, Jones,' I broke out, "'I can't think you'd do such a caddish thing as that. Think it over for a minute. You came down here, you sweep that unfortunate girl off her feet, you make love to her with the fury of a stage villain, 
you force her to betray her very evident partiality for you, and then you have the effrontery to say, Goodbye, I'm off. My mother, he began, you simply cannot act so dishonorably, Jones. He sat silent for a little while. My mother, he started in again finally. Surely your mother loves you? I demanded. That's the terrible part of it, Westoby. She— Pooh! She stinted herself to get me through col— Then why did you ever come here? That's just the question I'm asking myself now. I don't see that you have any right to assume all that about your mother, anyway. Eleanor Van Coort is a woman of a thousand, unimpeachable social position, a little fortune of her own, accomplished, handsome, charming, sought after. Why, if you managed to win such a girl as that, your mother would walk on air. No, she wouldn't. Bertha— You're a pretty cheap lover, I said. I don't set up to be a little tin hero, but I'd go through fire and water for my girl. Good heavens, love is love, and all the mothers— he let out a few more groans. "'Then see here, Jones,' I went on, "'you owe some courtesy to your hostess. If you went away to-night, it would be an insult. Whatever you decide to do later, you've simply got to stay here until Tuesday morning.' "'Must I?' he said, in the tone of a person who is ordered not to leave the sinking ship. "'A gentleman has to,' I said." He quavered out a sort of acquiescence, and then asked me for the loan of a white tie. I should have loved to give him a bowstring instead, with somebody who knew how to operate it. He was a fluff, that fellow, a tarnation fluff. 4. It was a pretty glum evening all round. Most of them thought that Jones had got the chilly mitt. Eleanor looked pale and undecided, not knowing what to make of Jones's death's head face. She was resentful and pitying in turns, and I saw all the material lying around for a first-class conflagration. Freddy was a bit down on me, too, saying that a smoother method would have ironed out Jones, and that I had been headlong and silly. She cried over it and wouldn't kiss me in the dark, and I was goaded into saying, well, the course of true love ran in bumps that night. There was only one redeeming circumstance, and that was my managing to keep Jones and Eleanor apart. I mean that I insisted on being number three, till at last poor Eleanor said she had a headache, and forlornly went up to bed. Jones was still asleep when I got up the next morning at six, and dressed myself quickly so as not to awake him. It was now Monday, and you can see for yourself there was no time to spare. I gave the butler a dollar, and ordered him to say that unexpected business had called me away without warning, but that I should be back by luncheon. I rather overdid the earliness of it all. At least I hove off 1892 Eighth Avenue at 8.15 a.m. I loitered about, looked at pawn-shop windows, gave a careful examination to a $48.98 complete outfit for a four-room flat, had a chat with a policeman, assisted at a runaway, advanced a nickel to a colored gentleman in distress, had my shoes shined by another, helped a child catch an escaped parrot, and still it wasn't nine. Idleness is a grinding occupation, especially on Eighth Avenue in the morning. Mrs. Jones was a thin, straight-backed, brisk old lady with a keen tongue and a Yankee faculty for coming to the point. 
I besought her indulgence, and laid the whole Eleanor matter before her, at least as much of it as seemed wise. I appeared in the role of her son's warmest admirer and best friend. "'Surely you won't let Harry ruin his life from a mistaken sense of his duty to you?' "'Duty fiddlesticks!' said she. "'He is going to marry Bertha McNutt.' "'But he doesn't want to marry Bertha McNutt.' "'Then he needn't marry anybody.' She seemed to think this a triumphant answer. Indeed, in some ways I must confess that it was. But still I persevered. "'It puts me out to have him shilly-shallying around like this,' she said. "'I'll give him a good talking to when he gets back. This other arrangement has been understood between Mrs. McNutt and myself for years.' She was an irritating person. I found it not a little difficult to keep my temper with her. It's easier to fight dragons than to temporize with them and appeal to their better nature. I appealed and appealed. She watched me with the same air of interested detachment that one gives to a squirrel revolving in a cage. I could feel that she was flattered. Her sense of power was agreeably tickled. My earnestness and despair enhanced the zest of her reiterated refusals. I was a very nice young man, but her son was going to marry Bertha McNutt, or marry nobody. Then I tried to draw a lurid picture of his revolt from her apron strings. "'Oh, Harry's a good boy,' she said. "'You can't make me believe that two days has altered his whole character. I'll answer for his doing what I want.' I felt a precisely similar conviction, and my heart sank into my shoes. At this moment there was a tap at the door, and another old lady bounced in. She was stout, jolly-looking, and effusive. The greetings between the pair were warm, and they were evidently old friends. But underneath this newcomer's gush and noise I was dimly conscious of a sort of gay hostility. She was exultant and frightened both at once, and her eyes were sparkling. "'Well, what do you think?' she cried out explosively. Mrs. Jones' lips tightened. There was a mean streak in that old woman. I could see she was feeling for her little hatchet and was getting out her little gun. "'Bertha!' exploded the old lady. "'Bertha!' Mysterious mental processes at once informed me that this was none other than Bertha's mother. Mrs. Jones was coolly taking aim. I was reminded of that old military dictum, "'Don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes.' "'Bertha!' vociferated the old lady fiercely. "'Bertha has been secretly married to Mr. Stuffenhammer for the last three months!' Another series of kinematographic mental processes informed me that Mr. Stuffenhammer was an immense catch. Twenty thousand dollars a year and her own carriage!' announced Mrs. McNutt gloatingly. "'You could have knocked me down with a feather. Bertha is such a considerate child. She insisted on marrying secretly so that she could tone it down by degrees to poor Harry. Though there was no engagement or anything like that, she could not help feeling, of course, that she owed it to the dear boy to gradually—' Mrs. Jones never turned a hair or moved a muscle. "'You needn't pity Harry,' she said. I've just got the good news that he's engaged to one of the sweetest and richest girls in Morristown. I jumped for my hat and ran. 5. You never saw anybody so electrified as Jones. 
For a good minute he couldn't even speak. It was like bringing a horseback reprieve to the hero on the stage. He repeated, Stuffenhammer, Stuffenhammer, in tones that Henry Irving might have envied, while I gently undid the noose around his neck. I led him under a tree and told him to buck up. He did so, slowly and surely, and then began to ask me agitated questions about proposing. He deferred to me as though I had spent my whole life bluebearding through the social system. He wanted to be coached how to do it, you know. I told him to rip out the words, any old words, and then kiss her. Don't let there be any embarrassing pause, I said. A girl hates pauses. It seems a great liberty, he returned. It doesn't strike me as respectful. You try it, I said. It's the only way. I'll be glad when it's over, he remarked dreamily. Whatever you do, keep clear of set speeches, I went on, blurted out no matter how badly, but with all the fire and ginger in you. He gazed at me like a dead calf. Here goes, he said, and started on a trembling walk toward the house. I don't know whether he was afraid or didn't get the chance or what it was, but at any rate the afternoon wore on without the least sign of his coming to time. I kept tab on him as well as I could, checkers with Miss Drayton, half an hour writing letters, a long talk with the Major, and finally his getting lost altogether in the shrubbery with an old lady. Freddy said the suspense was killing her, and was terribly despondent and miserable. I couldn't interest her in the 72nd Street house at all. She asked what was the good of working and worrying, and figuring and making lists, when in all probability it would be another girl that would live there. She had an awfully mean opinion of my constancy, and was intolerably philosophical, and, oh, I wouldn't blame you in the least little bit if you did go off and marry somebody else. She took a pathetic pleasure in loving me, losing me, and then weeping over the dear dead memory. She said nobody ever got what they wanted anyway, and might she come, when she was old and ugly and faded and weary, to take care of my children and be a sort of dear old auntie in the 72nd Street house. I said certainly not, and we had a fight right away. As we were dressing for dinner that night, I took Jones to task, and tried to stiffen him up. I guess I must have mismanaged it somehow, for he said he'd thank me to keep my paws out of his affairs, and then went into the bathroom, where he shaved and growled for ten whole minutes. I itched to throw a boot-jack at him, but compromised on doing a little growling myself. Afterward we got into our clothes in silence, and as he went out first he slammed the door. It was a disheartening evening. We played progressive euchre for a silly prize, and we all got shuffled up wrong and had to stay so. Then the major did amateur conjuring until we nearly died. I was thankful to sneak out of doors and smoke a cigar under the starlight. I walked up and down, consigning Jones to, well, where I thought he belonged. I thought of the time I had wasted over the fellow, the good money, the hopes. I was savage with disappointment, and when I heard Freddy softly calling me from the veranda, I zigzagged away through the trees toward the lodge gate. There are moments when a man is better left alone. Besides, I was in one of those self-tormenting humors when it is a positive pleasure to pile on the agony. 
when you're eighty-eight percent miserable, it's hell not to reach par. I was sore all over, and I wanted the balm, the consolation, to be found in the company of those cold old stars, who had looked down in their time on such countless generations of human asses. It gave me a wonderful sense of fellowship with the past and future. I was reflecting on what an infinitesimal speck I was in the general scheme of things, when I heard the footfall of another human speck, stumbling through the dark, and carrying a dress-suit case. It was Jones himself, outward-bound, and doing five knots an hour. I was after him in a second, doing six. "'Jones!' I cried. He never even turned around. I grabbed him by the arm. He wasn't going to walk away from me like that. "'Where are you going?' I demanded. "'Home.' "'But say, stop, you can't do that. It's too darned rude. We don't break up till tomorrow.' "'I'm breaking up now,' he said. "'But—let go my arm.' "'Oh, but my dear chap,' I began. "'Don't you dear chap me.' We strode on in silence. Even his back looked sullen, and his face under the gaslights. "'Westaby,' he broke out suddenly, "'if there's one thing I'm sensitive about, it is my name. Slap me in the face, turn the hose on me, rip the coat off my back, and you'd be astounded by my mildness. But when it comes to my name, I—I'm a tiger.' "'A tiger?' I repeated encouragingly. "'It all went swimmingly,' he continued in a tone of angry confidence. For five seconds I was the happiest man in the United States. I, I did everything you said, you know, and I was dumbfounded at my own success. She, she loves me, Westaby. I gazed inquiringly at the dress suitcase. We don't belong to any common Joneses. We're Connecticut Joneses. In fact, we're the only Joneses, and the name is as dear to me, as sacred, as I suppose that of Westaby is, perhaps, to you. And yet— and yet, do you know what she actually said to me? Said to me, holding my hand, and, and, that the only thing she didn't like about me was my name. I contrived to get out, good heavens, with the proper astonishment. I told her that Van Court didn't strike me as being anything very extra. Wouldn't it have been wiser to... Oh, for myself, I'd do anything in the world for her, but a fellow has to show a little decent pride. A fellow owes something to his family, doesn't he? As a man, I love the ground she walks on. As a Jones, well, if she feels like that about it, I told her she had better wait for a de Montmorency. But she didn't say she wouldn't marry you, did she? No. She didn't ask you to change your name, did she? No. And do you mean to say that just for one unfortunate remark, a remark that any one might have made in the agitation of the moment, you're deliberately turning your back on her and her broken heart? Oh, she's red-hot too, you know, over what I said about the Van Courts. She couldn't have realized that you belonged to the Connecticut Joneses. I didn't know it. I— Well, it's all off now, he said. It was a mile to the depot. For Jones it was a mile of reproaches, scoldings, lectures, and insults. For myself I shall ever remember it as the mile of my life. I pleaded, argued, extenuated, and explained. My lifelong happiness, Freddy, the 72nd Street house, 
were walking away from me in the dark while I jerked unavailingly at Jones's coat-tails. The whole outfit disappeared into a car, leaving me on the platform with the ashes of my hopes. Of all the obstinate, mulish, pig-headed, copper-riveted, I was lucky enough to find Eleanor crying softly to herself in a corner of the veranda. The sight of her tears revived my fainting courage. I thought of Bruce and the spider, and waded in. "'Eleanor,' I said, "'I've just been seeing poor Jones off.' She sobbed out something to the effect that she didn't care. "'No, you can't care very much,' I said, or you wouldn't send a man like that, a splendid fellow, a member of one of the oldest and proudest families of Connecticut, to his death. Death? Well, he's off for Japan tomorrow. They're getting through fifty doctors a week out there at the front. They're shot down faster than they can set them up. I was unprepared for the effect of this on Eleanor. For two cents she would have fainted then and there. It's awful to hear a woman moan and clench her teeth and pant for breath. Oh, Eleanor, can't you do anything? I am helpless, Ezra, my pride, my woman's pride. Oh, how can you let such trifles stand between you? Think of him out there in his tattered Japanese uniform, so far from home, so lonely, so heartbroken, standing undaunted in that rain of steel, while— Oh, Ezra, stop! I can't bear it! I can't bear it! Is the love of three years to be thrown aside like an old glove, just because— Her face was so wild and strained that the lies froze upon my tongue. Oh, Ezra, I could follow him barefooted through the snow if only he— He's leaving Grand Central tomorrow at 10.45, I said. She fumbled at her neck and almost tore away the diamond locket that reposed there. "'Take him this,' she whispered hoarsely. "'Take it to him at once and say I sent it. Say that I beg him to return, that my pride crumbles at the thought of his going away so far into danger.' I put the locket carefully into my pocket. "'And, Eleanor, try and don't rub him the wrong way about his name. Is it worth while?' There have to be Joneses, you know. Tell him, she burst out, tell him, oh, I never meant to wound him, truly I didn't, a name that's good enough for him is good enough for me. The next morning at nine I pulled up my Porsche mufflin car before Jones's door. He was sitting at his table reading a book, and he made no motion to rise as I came in. He gave me a pale, expressionless stare instead, such as an ancient Christian might have worn when the cowboy told him the lions were ready in the Colosseum. Resignation, obstinacy, and defiance, all nicely blended under the turn-the-other-cheek exterior. He looked woebegone, and his thin, handsome face betrayed a sleepless night and a breakfastless morning. I could feel that my presence was the last straw to this unfortunate medical camel." I threw in a genial remark about the weather and took a seat. Jones hunched himself together and squirmed a sad little squirm. "'Mr. Westaby,' he said, "'I once made use of a very strong expression in regard to you. I said, if you remember, that I'd be obliged if you'd keep your paws—' "'Don't apologize,' I interrupted. "'I forgot it long ago.' "'You've taken me up wrong,' he continued drearily. I should like you to consider the remark repeated now. 
Yes, sir, repeated. Oh, bosh! I exclaimed. You have a very tough epidermis, he went on, quite the toughest epidermis I have met with in my whole professional career. A paper adequately treating your epidermis would make a sensation before any medical society. Somehow I couldn't feel properly insulted. The whole business struck me as irresistibly comical. I lay back in my chair, my uninvited chair, and roared with laughter. I couldn't forbear asking him what treatment he'd recommend. He pointed to the door and said laconically, Fresh air. I retorted by laying the diamond locket before him. My dear fellow, I said, as he gazed at it transfixed, don't let us go on like a pair of fools. Eleanor charged me to give you this and beg you to return. I don't believe he heard me at all. That flashing trinket was far more eloquent than any words of mine. He laid his head in his hands beside it, and his whole body trembled with emotion. He trembled and trembled, till finally I got tired of waiting. I poked him in the back and reminded him that my car was waiting downstairs. He rose with a strange, bewildered air, and submitted like a child to be led into the street. He had the locket clenched in his hand, and every now and then he would glance at it as though unable to believe his eyes. I shut him into the tonneau, and took a seat beside my chauffeur. "'Let her out, James,' I said. James let her out with a vengeance. There was a sunny-haired housemaid at the Van Courts, and it was a crack, new, four-cylinder car with a direct drive on the top speed. Off we went like the wind, jouncing poor Jones around the tonneau like a pea in a pill-box. But he didn't care. Was he not seraphically whizzing through space, obeying the diamond telegram of love? In the gentle whistle and bang of the whole performance, he even ventured to raise his voice in song, and I could overhear him behind me, adding a lyrical finish to the hum of the machinery. It was a walloping run, and we only throttled down on the outskirts of Morristown. You see, I had to coach him about that Japanese war business, or else there might be trouble. So I leaned over the back seat and gently broke it to him. I thought I had managed it rather well. I felt sure he could understand, I said, the absolute need of a little embellishing, and— Let me out, he said. I feverishly went on explaining. If you don't let me out, I'll climb out, he said, and began to make as good as his word over the tonneau. Of course there was nothing for it but to stop the car. Jones deliberately descended and headed for New York. I ran after him while the chauffeur turned the car round and slowly followed us both. It was a queer procession. First Jones, then I, then the car. Finally I overtook him. "'Jones!' I panted. "'Jones!' He muttered something about Ananias and speeded up. "'But it was an awfully tight place,' I pleaded. "'Something had to be done. You must make allowances. It was the first thing that came to my head, and you must admit that it worked, Jones. Didn't she send you the locket? Didn't she—' "'What a prancing show-off matinee fool you've made me look!' he burst out. I have an old mother to support. I have an increasing practice. I have already attracted some little attention in my chosen field, eye, ear, and throat. 
a nice figure I'd cut, traipsing around the battlefields in a kimono, and looking for a kindly bullet to lay me low. If I were ever tempted by such a thing, which God forbid, wouldn't I prefer to spread bacilli on buttered toast? I never thought of that, I said humbly. I have known retail liars, he went on, but I guess you are the only wholesaler in the business. When other people are content with ones and twos, you get them out in grosses packed for export. He went on slamming me like this for miles. Anybody else would have given him up as hopeless. I don't want to praise myself, but if I have one good quality, it's staying power. I pleaded and argued, and expostulated and explained, with the determination of a man whose back is to the wall. I wasn't going to lose Freddy so long as there was breath in my body. However, it wasn't the least good in the world. Jones was as impervious as sole leather, and as unshaken as a marble pillar. Then I played my last card. I told him the truth. Not the whole truth, of course, but within ten percent of it about Freddy, you know, and how she was determined not to marry before her elder sister, and how Eleanor's only preference seemed to be for him, and how with such a slender clue to work on I had engineered everything up to this point. If I have seemed to you intolerably prying and officious, I said, well, at any rate, Jones, there's my excuse. It rests with you to give me Freddy or take her from me." turn back and you'll make me the happiest man alive. Go forward and, and... I watched him out of the corner of my eye. His tread lost some of its elasticity. He was short-circuiting inside. Positively, he began to look sort of sympathetic and human. Westaby, he said at last, in a voice almost of awe, when they get up another world's fair, you must have a building to yourself. You're colossal, that's what you are. I'm only in love, I said. Well, that's the love that moves mountains, he said. If anybody had told me that I should... He stopped irresolutely on the word. Oh, to think I have to stand for all that rot, he bleated. I was too wise to say a word. I simply motioned Jones to switch the car around and back up. I shooed Jones into the tonneau and turned the knob on him. He snuggled back in the cushions and smiled, yes, smiled, with a beautiful blue-eyed, faraway, indulgent expression that warmed me like spring sunshine. Not that I felt absolutely safe even yet. Of course I couldn't, but still. We ran into Freddy and Eleanor at the lodge gates. I had already telephoned the former to expect us, so as to have everything fall out naturally when the time came. We stopped the car and descended, Jones and I, and he walked straight off with Eleanor, while I sidestepped with Freddy. She and I were almost too excited to talk. It was now or never, you know, and there was an awfully solemn look about both their backs that was either reassuring or alarming, we couldn't quite decide which. Freddy and I simply held our breath and waited. Finally, after an age, Jones and Eleanor turned, still close in talk, still solemn and enigmatical, and drew toward us very slowly and deliberately. When they had got quite close, and the tension was at the breaking point, Eleanor suddenly made a little rush, and, with a loud sob, threw her arms round Freddy's neck. 
Jones fidgeted nervously about, and seemed to quail under my questioning eyes. It was impossible to tell whether things had gone right or not. I waited for him to speak. I saw words forming themselves hesitatingly on his lips. He bent forward toward me quite confidentially. "'Say, old man,' he whispered, "'is there any place around here where a fellow can buy an engagement ring?' End of Jones Read by Trisha G.